Well, you can have a seat, and we've been, we've been looking at those truths over the last several weeks, um, and really as we've begun uh, this series that will take us really through the, the end of this month, now the month of May, uh, that will uh, set us up for the summer when we're just going to take the opportunity and, and, and look at uh, about, about nine or ten different psalms uh, through the summer, really just a psalm a week, and uh, as we've been thinking about the doctrine of God, which is just a really fancy way of trying to just say, let's get our minds wrapped around uh, what, it, what it means when we say God and, and who the Bible says that He is. And, and so uh, this is so vitally important for so many reasons. Um, one being our mission as a church, what we've tried to communicate and, and, and walk you through in regards to what it is that we believe our mission is, is that we believe that mission is to glorify God by being disciple-making disciples. And so if we're going to have this mission that glorifies God, well, it perhaps is a good thing to understand who He is so that we might indeed be able to glorify Him. And, and if we're going to be His disciples, which just is a word that, that means follower, if we're going to be his followers and make other followers, then we should know who he is and who this God is that we serve, who this God is that the Bible reveals him to be. And, and so where we began two weeks ago um, was trying to get our minds wrapped around the question, who is God? Who is he? And if you would go to our website, and we're a part of a, a fellowship of churches, they're Grace Brethren Churches, it's, it's our group that we identify with, you would, you would see this written on our website, that we believe in one true God, eternally existing as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We just sang those words just a few minutes, praise, praise the Father, praise the Son, and praise the Spirit, three in one. We, we believe this to be true, and we've joked over the last couple of weeks that if you try to understand exactly how this is true, you're just going to lose your mind. But if you deny that it is true, then there's a whole lot graver consequences there. And what has emerged over the course of church history is, is not so much an illustration, but, but more a depiction of what the Bible reveals God is and who he is and this would be on your bulletin cover you can see it on the screen as well there in the middle you have God and the Bible clearly says that there is one God when we say that we believe that he's eternally existed in father son and spirit it is not that we have three gods we have one God who has eternally existed in three Persons, And you can therefore see God in the center. God is, if you go up, He is Father. If you come down to the left, God is the Son. To the right, God is the Spirit. But if you then begin working the outer loop, you will see that there is diversity and that the Father is not the Son. And the Son is not the Spirit. And the Spirit is not the Father. Anybody feel like they're losing their mind yet this morning? And the church has, has rallied around what amounts to be seven statements in regards to the question of who is God that have best been used to summarize and describe what it is the Bible teaches. And that, that these seven are, there is one God. The Father is God. The Son is God. 
The Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. And the Spirit is not the Father. And there's just incredible implications in this for us as we think about just human relationships. You think about the fact that we in our world spend just vast amounts of time discussing how there can be unity in the midst of tremendous diversity. We have diversity in this room. There's worldwide diversity. We, we continually try to wrestle with that question. How can, how can we be united when we're all so different and yet you see perfect harmony and unity within the Godhead, within the Trinity, despite there being vast differences in roles, in functions. And so, as that even relates to marriages, Carrie and I have different roles in our marriage, and yet we are one. And there's unity in the midst of diversity, and you see those distinctions playing themselves out, and the Trinity becomes an example for us in regards to human relationships. And so that was two weeks ago as we really tried to wrestle with the question of who is God. Last week we tried to tackle with and wrestle through the question of, well, what is this God like? If he is one God and he's three in persons, well, what is he like? What characteristics describe him? And what we're able to do is, is provide you with 25 different characteristics from the scriptures that are used to describe God. And God, unlike us, is all of those things at all times without any diversion or diminishing for any of them. So all 25 of those characteristics, God is. And just try to be real honest and wrestle with the couple that we probably struggle with the most, if we're honest. How can God be wrathful? How can God hate sin? How can God punish sin, punish sinners, and yet at the very same time be loving? Because those things seem like a contradiction. And what does the Bible do with that? It's one of the greatest objections that you may hear just in in mainstream culture in regards to Christianity. Well, I don't want anything to do with Christianity because the God of the Old Testament is just a mean guy. Just a mean guy sitting on an anthill with a magnifying glass. He's just looking to torch people. Who is this and how do we reconcile what we read in the scriptures in regards to God's wrath and his love? What do we do with that? And I think with the answer that we see play out across the landscape of the Old and New Testament is a consistent answer that God is, he is wrathful, he is just, he is holy. So there will be consequences for sin and those who are sinful, which is all of us. And yet at the very same time, he is loving. And the way God self-discloses his own character in the Old Testament is by saying that the Lord is a God who is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger. He abounds in steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. There is not a different God between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There is one God who, yes, is indeed just and holy and will punish sin and sinners, but at the same time sent his one and only son to bear that punishment. And you and I live in what is best described right now as a window of mercy, where the pronouncement of incoming, impeding judgment upon sin by God himself in really Old Testament form and function 
is coming. And yet there stands before us today an invitation to trust in Christ for salvation, to repent of our sin because God is gracious and compassionate and merciful and slow to anger. And this is who he is. And for those of us that have trusted in Jesus Christ, we can sing those words, you're a good, good father. It's who you are. We're loved by you. It's who I am because of who God is and what he has done for us in Christ. And this morning, we're going we're gonna to try to narrow in the lens just a little bit on the Father and think through his work as it relates to salvation. And I'll be real honest with you this morning, I'm, I'm after your minds. I want you to think this morning. We've been thinking a lot. We're, we're going to be thinking through this whole series uh, just because of the nature of what it is. But I'm after your minds this morning. I want you to think and I want you to grapple with these truths that the scriptures say. We're going to look at a passage that does not give a command. And so in, in many ways it would, be, it would be contrary to the passage itself if I was to just kind of go, well, and then we're going to all do this. It, it, it's a passage that rather articulates some tremendous truths about who God is. And to be sure, there are application points in it that we can draw out of it, but they are far more in regards to how we think than necessarily the actions that we would go and perform. But as we looked at over the book of Titus, the big idea there was that right beliefs lead to right actions. So thinking correctly leads to correct actions. So I'm after your minds this morning. I want you to think. I want you to wrestle along with me as we think about the Father's sovereign, saving work and what it is that the Scriptures do very clearly reveal that the Father has done. So if you've got a Bible with you this morning, grab it. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 3 to 14, really in, in, in a broad way this morning. But then we'll look at verses 3 to 6 a little bit more specifically, a little bit more detailedly. Um, And what you have on your notes page in the bulletin is that you'll see one side is actually the text. And then the other side just gives you some blanks. I don't know how you do this. I like to write in my Bible. And uh, this morning I want to show you in in, in broad strokes some, some overview characteristics of this passage that it may just be difficult to write in your Bible that quickly. So you got the text there and you can just transplant those notes later in a way that maybe is is legible and you can think through how it is you want to identify some of these things. But before we go any farther, before we even read the text, would you pray with me? And uh, as we as we come before the Lord and his word, um, let's go before him now. Well, God, once again, we are going to be considering some tremendous things about what it is that you have revealed in your word. We're going to see things about your nature and character, about your, your plan. God, you're going to have some tremendous things to say about who we are in relationship to you. And Lord, I pray that as we, we come to your word, that you, would, that you would meet us here in this room this morning. God, I pray that you would guard my words from error, that what I would say would be, would be truthful, 
and that it would conform and fall in line with what it is that you have said. God, ultimately what we need this morning is to not hear me, but to hear you. And so God, I I fully realize that I'm just a mouthpiece. So Lord, I pray and, and ask and invite you to just come and speak. And to do so clearly, to do so loudly and in a way that we can understand. And so Lord, we pray that you'd give us ears to hear. That you'd help us to listen. And that these tremendous truths that you have revealed in your word would indeed cause us to respond in the way Paul did where he just explodes in praise for who you are. So we thank you for who you are. This God that we can't fully understand. This God who has planned to do tremendous things in and through the Son and by the Spirit. And we pray this in the good name of Jesus now. Amen. Well, verses 3 to 14 of chapter 1 in Ephesians are one sentence as Paul originally wrote them. Try passing that past your English teacher. She'd probably throw a fit. Uh, I probably had a few run-on sentences that were on par with that, and she did have a fit. Uh, This is one large sentence with commas and semicolons and clauses and phrases and all sorts of things. It's 202 words as was originally written. That roughly translates, depending on what translation you have, it roughly translates to 245 words in our English Bible. And so we have sentence structure in here. We have some periods, capitalization. Uh, We have uh, verse numbers and all of those things which aid our understanding. But this is one complete thought that the Apostle Paul is trying to get after here. And so, as I said, I want to read the text. I want to make some general observations about the text in its totality. But then I want to I zero in on verses 3 to 6, even more specifically in regards to the work of the Father. Because the next two weeks, we're going to turn the lens even more so towards the work of the Son And then the two weeks after, we are going to focus on the work of the Spirit. So it will feel like we're not getting after the work of the Son and the work of the Spirit this morning, and that's okay. We're going to get there. This morning, we want to zero in a little bit more on the work of the Father. And so let's go to the text. Would you look there with me? Let's read. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace. With which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, 
making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. The first thing that I want us to look at this morning is that we have a Trinitarian salvation. That all three members of the Trinity are actively involved in our salvation. That what you have depicted there on the screen about who God is, is an accurate way to describe what it is and how God is involved in our salvation. And the text bears that significance for us. And this is probably the most detailed text that we have that articulates these things in such great detail. But as we look at the text itself, there on the screen, I tried to just color code some things for you. What you have in the first block of white font, you have verses 3 to 6. That is Paul's articulation of what it is that the Father has planned. What it is that the Father set out to accomplish. That is, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ. And there's an articulation of the Father's role in planning and initiating salvation for His people. And then what you have in the yellow chunk is a, is a, a declaration, a description of the Son's role, of what Jesus Christ has done in regards to salvation. And those are verses 7 to 12. And then what you have in the last block of white is a description of the Spirit's role in regards to salvation, His work of sealing and guaranteeing. And it's been rightly said that it was the Father that planned salvation, it was the Son that came and accomplished salvation, and it is the Spirit who applies and guarantees salvation. You see the application of the Spirit applying salvation from actually Titus 3. Um, But here you have the work of the Spirit, that being sealing and guaranteeing. And we're going to unpack some of that in several weeks from now. But what that means is that God has declared and has given His Spirit to us to say, the work I began in you, I will complete in you. It's promised. It's guaranteed. You are sealed. You are mind, but we have a Trinitarian salvation, and you see all three members of the Trinity and their roles in regards to salvation. Just a side note, if you've ever been with us and seen a a baptism that we do here on a Sunday morning, uh, those getting baptized go under the water three times. And it's a bit unique if you think about other traditions that may indeed put people under the water, but would only do so once. We put people under the water three times because we believe that the Trinity is so actively involved and engaged in salvation that the very act of baptizing and celebrating salvation should reflect this. 
And so mode, how we actually do it, the mechanics, should reflect and picture the very salvation that it is that we're celebrating, which is a Trinitarian salvation. So we put them under three times. It's just a conviction that grace brethren individuals have from the scriptures. And here's a, a specific place that that conviction emerges from. So you see all three members of the Trinity and their role, but you also see this refrain that echoes out across all three parts in this passage. Verses 6, verses 12, and 14 all have a very similar phrase, all have a very similar refrain that stands out in contrast to the rest. In verse 6 you have, the Father has done this to the praise of His glorious grace. In verses 7 to 12, you have an articulation of what the Son has done, which ends with the phrase, to the praise of His glory. Now, I believe that that proper, that pronoun, His, there, that's boxed in the middle and third one, is a reference to the Father, specifically. So, if you go to the first box in verses 3 to 6, the Father has done this to the praise of the Father's glorious grace. Verses 7 to 12, the Son has done this to the praise of the Father's glory. In verses 13 and 14, the Spirit is doing this to the praise of, his, of the Father's glory. And this strikes up a, and picks up a major theme in the Scriptures that we read about, that the Father preeminently does all things for His glory. So when we say that our mission is to glorify God by being disciple-making disciples, we are trying to recognize and say that we are aligned with what it is that the Father's mission is. And the Father exists to glorify Himself, and He is working out this salvation for His people, for His glory. And He sent the Son to go and accomplish this salvation for His glory. Glory and the Spirit has come to do things for the glory of the Father. It's a Trinitarian salvation that that all points to the glory of God the Father. But the Father is most glorified, and He delights in doing things through the Son. And there's this other incredible truth that gets unpacked as we look at these verses. What you have on the screen before you is all of the instances of the name of Christ, or every pronoun, the word him, that is associated with Christ. So Paul explodes as he's writing this, Blessed be the Father, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. So this salvation that we have is to the glory of God the Father, but we have it because of what Christ has done, and it is the delight of the Father to do these things through the Son, to accomplish His work through the Son. 1 Timothy 2.5 would say, There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. And you have the Son coming at the predetermined plan of the Father to accomplish this salvation. And you have the work of the Father being done in Christ. You have the work of our salvation and forgiveness of sin being done through Christ and His blood that was shed on the cross. And you have the work of the Spirit sealing us as we have placed our faith and trust in Christ as well. This Trinitarian salvation that we have has been accomplished through 
the Son. And there's part of the distinction in the Trinity and part of the illustration that we can draw out as it relates to human relationships where it was not the Spirit that sent the Father. The Son didn't send the Father either. The Father sent the Son. And you see distinctions in their roles and yet unity in the goal of saving sinners. And so I want to look at verses 3 to 6 with you. And 3 to 6 stand in stark contrast to every other major world religion. Because they, if you boil them down, will ultimately say, you must do this to find your way to God. You need to, you need to recite these many things. You need to not eat these certain things. You need to pray those things. You need to face this direction. You need to do all of these things to get your way to God so that God may take notice of you and God may, God may pay attention to you and you need to find a way to get His attention and here's the ways that you do it. And there's very pre-described paths along the way that if you do those things and perhaps don't do some of these things that you will you will get there but what you have in verses three to six stands in stark contrast because they are not verses that describe you and I trying to find our way to God they are verses that describe God having come for us and there is a marked difference between what these verses describe the heart of the gospel to be in every other major world religion. See, it's the gospel message that says that the triune God has drawn near to draw near a people for himself. And from beginning to end, salvation is a work of God. It is not by our works. So let's look at verses 3 to 6 together. We'll see the plan of the Father that has been accomplished through the Son. Paul begins by saying in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He explodes as he's writing this. The words blessed just are words that, that, that communicate praise. He's almost not sure what to say because as he's meditating and planning on writing these things, he's not sure what else he could say to communicate the exuberance of what is welling up inside of him as he writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Just consider that for a moment, that you and I have been, if we have placed our faith and trust in Christ for salvation, we have been told that we have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Already in verse 3, you see the Trinity at work. It is the God and Father of Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ through the accomplishment of Christ and has given us spiritual blessings. These are not human blessings. These are blessings of the Spirit. He's given us so many tremendous things. And Paul continues, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. The Father's sovereign work is a planned work. And we're told in verse 4 that this work was a work that the Father chose to do. And he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. 
That the purpose of this choosing was for us to look like Jesus. And if you would just turn a page, you don't have to, but if you, if you did, Ephesians 5 in 28 to 33 describes the, the role and activity of Christ in regards to his bride. And in those verses it says that Christ is making a bride for himself that is holy and blameless to present that bride to himself. Again, you see the plan of the Father choosing us in Christ to be holy and blameless, being accomplished by the activity of the Son who will present us to himself holy and blameless. And we're told the Father chose us from before the foundation of the world. That's an interesting phrase that shows up elsewhere in Scripture. Jesus in John 17, verse 24, He's in the upper room with His disciples just a few short hours before He would be put on a cross and He would pay for sin. And He is praying to the Father and He is saying, Father, I I pray and I long for that these disciples would experience the love that you have for me, the love you had for me before the foundation of the world. Christ is praying to the Father, referencing that the Father and the Son have eternally existed and there has been eternal love being communicated between them and pleading with the Father that those disciples and by extension us would experience that same love. Peter would write in 1 Peter 1.20, That Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you or the sake of us. Peter's recounting the fact that it was the Father's plan before the foundation of the world that the Son would come. But then there was a time that the Son came and He was made manifest. He was incarnated. He took on flesh. He was born of a virgin and He lived a real sinless life and He died a real death for sinners. But this was a plan that was foreknown before the world had even been created. Revelation 13 verse 8, the Apostle John writes, And all who dwell on the earth will worship the beast. He's considering and thinking about a vision that the Lord has given him about this seven-year period of time at the end of of human history, by and large, where, where those that are here on the earth will be deceived to worship what is called the beast. But he says this, and he goes on, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. John says that there will be an entire group of people that worship the beast here on earth and it will be those people whose names had not been written in the book of life that was written before the foundation of the world. One last reference where this phrase or a one quite similar shows up is in 2 Timothy 1.9. Paul is trying to encourage Timothy who's actually a pastor at this church in Ephesus. He's trying to encourage him because there is all sorts of grief that Timothy has experienced. He's actually wondering and considering whether or not he's going to give up on the ministry that the Lord gave him. And Paul says this, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor me as his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Paul's encouragement to Timothy is to think about the fact that before the world was created, before the ages began, God had a plan. 
So Timothy, you strengthen yourself. You be encouraged because God has a plan. In Ephesians 1 verse 4, we are told that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. One pastor says it this way, I think it could be helpful. Your salvation did not begin with your choice to believe in Christ, a choice which was real and necessary. Your salvation began before the creation of the universe, when God planned the history of redemption, ordained the death and resurrection of the Son, and chose you to be His own through Christ. This is what Paul is saying in Ephesians 4. We have been chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before Him. He continues in verse 5, In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. If you have an NIV translation, that word purpose will actually be translated good pleasure. That's probably a better translation. That in love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of His will. So we have another big word that shows up in verse 5. In love He predestined us for adoption. That word predestined means to determine beforehand what should happen. And it was in love that the Father predestined us for adoption. He predestined us to be His sons and daughters. He determined before the foundations of the world that this might be true of us. And this is not the only place that this word and idea shows up. Two times in the beginning chapters of the book of Acts, this thought is clearly communicated. The first being in Acts 2, verse 23. Peter rises up to preach, and he says this, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you Jews crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So Peter there recognizes that it was the lawless men who put Jesus on the cross, but that happened because God had a plan, and His plan was definite. In Acts 4, verses 27 to 28, the disciples are actually in an upper room. It may not be an upper room. They're in a room together. They're praying. Peter and John had just been released from prison. They're They're praying about what is happening, about the persecution they're beginning to experience. And if you look and you read their prayer, they're not praying to not be persecuted. They're not praying that the suffering would end. They're praying for boldness in the midst of it. They're recognizing, Lord, we we feel like there's this temptation to not be bold, but we're going to pray and ask for your boldness, despite the fact that two of our brothers were just imprisoned for actually speaking about the name of Jesus and declaring the gospel and faith in his name. And so they're praying for boldness, and they say as they pray, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. These believers are praying as they are asking the Lord to give them boldness, referencing God's plan and the predestining of Christ to take the place of sinful people. Paul tells us in Ephesians verse one, chapter 1, verse that in love He predestined us. We're told elsewhere that salvation is only a work 
of God. It is not a work that we contribute to. It's not a work that is done, or, or, or it's not an accomplishment that is done by our works. And so I, let's just chat here for a minute. Because these verses, and especially Acts 2 and Acts 4, they clearly speak to God's divine sovereignty. There was a definite plan and foreknowledge of God that sent Jesus to the cross. It was predetermined, it was predestined, it was his plan, and yet it was at the hands of lawless men. And those men are never absolved of their responsibility for what they did to Christ. Their actions were real, they had real consequences, they really killed the Son of God, but they did so because that was what the Father had predetermined before the foundations of the world would happen. And I won't be able to solve this question for you this morning, or perhaps ever, because there is this intention reality that God is divinely sovereign, and yet our choices are real, they have consequences, And so what you have in Ephesians chapter 1 is you have a declaration of the sovereignty of God in regards to salvation. Even as he chose us before the foundation of the world, before Adam and Eve were created, God had you and I in mind to be his sons and daughters. And he predestined that that would take place. And he did so according to the good pleasure of his will. But let's let's just be honest here. We struggle with this because we wonder, what about if he doesn't get chosen? Or is he? Or not? I've got two sons that fall into this boat. And I wonder, and I'll be honest with you, I struggle. I believe every one of these words in Ephesians 1. I believe that if they are saved, it will be because God had predestined them and elected them to be saved and had done everything necessary in Christ for their salvation. And yet there's the question, but what if? And it's a question the Bible does not actually solve for us because it's in many ways the wrong question or the wrong conclusion to be pursuing. Because what we also have been told and instructed in the Bible is that you and I plant gospel seeds, and it's God who gives the growth. That you and I have been called to declare with our lips that the Lord is good and has provided a salvation for his people. We have been called to plead and implore and beg sinful people to come and repent of their sin. We've been called to pray for them that they would turn from their sin and place their faith and trust in Christ. And so what I am capable of controlling is whether or not I pray for my boys, whether or not I love their mother in such a way that it is in my actions a declaration of this Savior who has saved them, whether or not I live out a a consistent life in such a way that they don't see a disconnect between what dad may say and how dad works and how he acts and how he lives So that when I tell them that sin is real and it is and has real consequences, but Jesus is good and Jesus will forgive your sin, that they can see harmony in the words that I have and the actions that I live with. God's sovereignty and salvation is on display everywhere in the scriptures. 
And we have never in the scriptures been ever able to conclude that, well, if God is sovereign, then why don't I just sit back and let him do his sovereign thing? Because we're told time and time again, no, you share, you go and preach, you live it out, you display it, you plead and invite those to place their faith and trust in Christ, you pray that they will. Ever since every one of my kids was born, every night that I am with them in their room praying for them, I pray that the Lord would save them. And Carrie and I praise God that we've got two girls who have placed their faith and trust in Christ. But it's the plea of this father's heart that, 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 that God would save them, and I'm going to do everything I can to plead with them to trust in Jesus. And I'm going to rest in the mercy and the grace and the compassion and the steadfast love of this God who clearly from beginning to end delights in saving. So there's struggle there. I won't deny it. But Paul himself in 1 Timothy 1.16 tells us some incredible things about his own salvation. And he says this, I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul is saying this, if you ever wonder if it is too late for somebody to repent of their sin, if you ever wonder if there is somebody who is too sinful to repent of their sin, you just look at me. Because I was the foremost sinner, and the reason that I got saved was that that question could be solved so that everybody could remind themselves of who I was and the tremendous mercy and grace of God. And this man was on a horse riding to Damascus for the purpose of imprisoning and giving approval of the execution of Christians. And God struck him off his horse and radically changed his world. And he says, you look at me. If you ever wonder if somebody is too far gone, if they're too far sinful, if they've lived too much of their life in antagonism or staunch denial of the gospel, not wanting to do anything or have anything to do with Christ, consistently rejecting and refusing any and all invitations to turn from their sin and repent. You look at me and you think of me because I was on my way to go kill those people and God got me. In many ways, a modern-day equivalent for us would be an ISIS fighter getting ready to go lop off the heads of some Christians that they had captured and God radically saving them. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying this happened at the exact time that the Lord wanted it to happen, and it happened according and to the praise of His glorious grace according to the purpose of His will. So I want you to see in these verses that God has provided a complete and a guaranteed salvation. 
God has com- provided a complete and guaranteed salvation and that His saving work will not be thwarted. In our CE class just about an hour ago, we were listening to the testimony of a former devout Muslim who for four years had a good friend pray for him, share the gospel with him, And three years into that four-year period of time, that man's church actually told him, "Uh, we think you're kind of wasting your time here. He said, no, 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 no. I'm going to continue praying for Nabim. I'm going to continue pleading with him. God's plans will not be thwarted. They happen according to the good pleasure of his will. I don't know why my grandmother got saved days before she died. It would have been great to grow up with a grandma who loved the Lord. I don't know why. I don't have the answer to that question. But God's good pleasure in saving her was accomplished, and it was not thwarted, despite all of her life that had been lived in rejection to who Christ was. There is a real salvation. God has provided it. And these truths have been used since the Old Testament to strengthen the faith of God's people. Think about God's declaration of a relationship not based on works. It's how the Ten Commandments start. If you look at the Ten Commandments before you actually get to the list of thou shalt nots, you have the Lord declaring His relationship with His people not on the basis of anything that they have done, He says, I am the Lord who has brought you out of Egypt and delivered you from the hand of slavery. This is not based on anything that they have done. And he strengthened them with those truths. Jesus himself says to his disciples in John 15, as he's giving them his final instructions, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. That you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Some of you have been reading Romans chapter six, chapter 6, 7, and 8 over the past several weeks. In Romans chapter 8, Paul answers, a, answers his own question. He asks a rhetorical question, and it's this. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? And he answers it. It is God who justifies. And he finishes that entire chapter by saying, Nothing in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus because the Father has planned in Christ a full and complete salvation that is guaranteed. And these truths have been communicated across the Scriptures as truths to strengthen God's people. Strength to a truth to embolden them. And so our salvation is at the plan of the Father. It has been accomplished by the Son. It's applied and it's guaranteed by the work of the Spirit. The band's going to lead us in a song called The Perfect Wisdom of Our God that thinks through what it is the Father is doing and how He is ruling and reigning in perfect wisdom. Would you stand as they lead us, please?